1: Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines Commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T shirt podcast. Alex, how are you, my friend? Hi, Chris. Yeah, I'm great. Thanks Good to be here. Um, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's, um, it's so kind you know, that you agreed to come on at, at very, pretty short notice, although we're not really going anywhere uh, at the moment What with this uh, lockdown. Um, you, I saw your story on LinkedIn. I immediately remembered, hang on, I've seen this guy doing a, Ted, a TEDx talk, which is impressive in, in itself. And I remember you saying something about turning uh, adversity or bad experiences into something positive, and that is uh, something massively that I'd promote, Alex, or I try try to promote. I try to get people to adopt the no negatives in life. If you don't turn everything into a positive, you're digging your own you know, you're digging yourself into into the ground. So, yes, I don't even know where to start with, <laughs> with your resume. Um, Everest, tw- you attempted Everest twice. Mm,
0: Two thousand fourteen and fifteen. So, yeah, five years ago now.
1: You would have been the youngest person to summit. Was would would I be um, right?
0: No, if I'd summited the first year, I would have been the uh, second youngest Briton and the youngest to climb from the south route in Nepal. Uh, I was 18 on the first attempt and 19 the following year. Is Bear Grills was he the youngest or is that...? He, he was at one point um, and Bear was a big inspiration to me actually and I'll come on to that you know, at some point, I'm sure. He was 23 when he, he summited but um, since then, the youngest Briton uh, is now 16 on the north side um, I think the youngest on the south side because there's two you know, there's two different routes to Everest um, was 18 so yeah I think that's still still been held and I'm 24 now so still you know I've, I've lost that age group that age kind of group now but to be honest it's never really about that it was just using using my age almost as an advantage to get the funding and get get the opportunity in place
1: mm.
0: absolutely amazing
1: and I can't wait to hear more I'm an armchair Everest fan, probably like a, you know, a few people. I, I met um, uh, it's Habler, isn't it? Messner's partner, Peter Habler. Yeah, Peter Habler. Yeah, I met him in uh, in um, oh, uh, Austria, obviously. Lit- no, can't remember the name of the place. It slips slips my mind. My mate's going to kill me because he lived there for ten years. <laughs> oh, christ <laughs> But um, yes, yeah, so I'm a big Everest fan. I look forward to hearing about that. But you've overcome adversity in your life. Again, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that. Can we just start, Alex? Because I get a lot of young people approach me talking about fitness uh, because they, they want to join the Royal Marines. And I try to get it across to them that it's, to be honest, the Marines are not looking for supermen. They they've nev- never have been. They're looking for people that won't give up, which is two different skill sets. Um, but you're a man that's used to not giving up. You've done a lot of ultra running. You've, you've run up just about every single mountain in, in Britain and every single hilltop as well. Um, what, what advice can we give these young people
0: I think that's a really good point, Chris, is that uh, it really is about the mindset. Um, and and uh, I've often said to myself that the engine is only as good as the steering wheel. Uh, somebody once said to me when I was starting off on this Everest journey, past quote that i been told to them, was that Everest is 90% mental and only 10% physical. I think you can probably use a similar equation to many things in life. I mean, obviously having the physical fitness um, is really important for anything. From a marathon, to a five k, to a, a long walk, to a big water endurance challenge, or something, you know, like the Marines and in the army. Now, I have no military experience, but I've been on trips and expeditions with a lot of people who have, and the general consensus is that they're both quite similar in that case of, you know, mind over matter. I'm um, physically, guess to, t- to take you back, I've never been a, you know, a, a natural. Well. A, naturally sort of strong in that sense i was never a, a kind of you know a natural athlete or gifted in that sense i was a bit of an outcast i was an underdog still am in many ways and um, i'm very much built for endurance and very lean very thin but put me in a gym and i could barely probably do a press-up um but then i've always found my strength in the mountains and running in particular because of my build and when i was at school you know when i was when i was younger I hated PE. I hated sport. I, I was the one that came second to last in cross country in PE, and I think partially that was down to mindset and lack of confidence in myself. Um, and I could never have believed that from coming second to last in cross country out of 150 kids, that I'd be coming kind of you know I, that I'd be first in 10ks and and you know in the hill races and fell races. You know, only a few years later, um, it shows we all have the capability. As long as we have the mindset, um, but I've always quite enjoyed that because in the mountains, in, you know, in, in my challenges, people probably see me as some kind of lanky kid, and you know, you can come flying past the guys who are all beefed up, and really big and strong, and think they can, you know, you know, actually smash the world. Um, but actually, sometimes that creates an expectation that because they've done hours in the gym, because they're super strong, that they can climb Everest, they can do all these things. Um, but that can be quite dangerous, and actually. Uh, on Everest and on the other peaks I've climbed and, um, uh, you know, i been on. Um, sometimes the people that I've done the best aren't the athletes. It's actually the older ones who are still unflappable. They're very laid back. They maybe haven't done any training or very much training at all, um, but they have the ability to adapt, to be flexible, and to take care of themselves. And typically my strength i found in sport uh, is in running. I mean, my best distance is probably marathons. Um, because I've never, I've never had the strength or the speed to any to be at any kind of good level. Um, but I think ultimately, what my challenges have taught me is that ability to keep on going has um, served me much better. And and in the mountains, it can be quite satisfying when you're literally, you know, running up hills past all these beefed up guys. You can bench press probably me in one arm. Um, <laughs> but strength has many different forms, and uh, it's quite satisfying. that, you're able to find the strength out of somewhere, really, and that um, training the mind will take you a lot further, I've often found.
1: Definitely. I mean, to to add to that, I was the worst runner in my troop in the Marines. I hated it. It was so hard. Um, and yet, I ran an ultra marathon a day for 37 days the length of Britain. <laughs> and that was... Relo considerably easier so what's changed you know well I was 50 or I was 48 instead of 18 so it can't be well I mean age has obviously changed but you wouldn't have thought that I'd work to my benefit well obviously the thing that had changed is how I talk to myself um and Isn't how it? you turn uh, you know pain into pleasure I suppose
0: sure So, I think yeah no go for it well, I was just going to add in there that I think you know we have to you know it's still important that that we put the physical work in I mean at the end of the day, no matter how determined you are, you're not going to run a sub free marathon if you've not ran um there are there there are obviously limits and and you know there are barriers, however, without the right mindset, the best physical preparation in the world won't get you there and it's like in the Olympics, you know people train for years and years and years for one moment and if the mind gets it wrong, um, if, if your mindset is wrong, then you've already set off on the wrong foot.
1: So the the moral of the story is: reading a book on mindset is going to, you know, it's going to see you succeed just as much as hitting the gym or or going out for a run.
0: Even better to actually get out there in the you know in the elements and push your bar, you know, stretch yourself beyond your comfort zone, put those. Um, you know, put that mindset in practice, I think, is often the, I think, I th- I think for me, you know, the as I'm sure you, you know, you, know, you, know, from, you know, from your own challenges and you know, the ultras, um, that there's no better teacher than adversity and hard times for building that resilience. And you can teach it, but there's no better way to learn it than actually getting out there and just putting yourself out there a bit more than you used to, I think.
1: What is your marathon time?
0: Um, I ran three official marathons I've, I've run a few in training you know on my own but uh, my best marathon was 254. Whoa at, that was, um, <laughs> that's incredible. I was at Chester in 2018 um, I did London last year but I would had an injury so I lost a few months and I hit, hit a very bad mental you know kind of mental place in that injury time and I came back, you know, just grateful that I could run. And actually I ran London for the experience and for the facts I was able to run rather than trying to, I could, well, I knew I wouldn't be able to beat my PB because I am very much goal and performance driven. Um, so I ran it in a costume instead to it, make it as a fundraiser. Um, and I think I ran 3.15 in a costume, so I was quite happy with that.
1: Oh, great. Well, you're almost an hour fast faster at the marathon than, than I was back in, not even back in the day, I don't think I ran the London until I was 35 years old, so it was probably past my, past my peak, peak then, but that is one hell of a good fun day, isn't it? It
0: is not its yeah, it was an experience of a lifetime, and obviously this year's would have been on Sunday coming up, um, but obviously it's been postponed due to the um, COVID. Now, because of my own challenge I had coming up, I deferred my uh, good for age place um, I wasn't going to run it this year, but I can completely relate to all the people that have been training and suddenly had their goal just, you know, ruined. But this is where we're in these challenging times. And I think, as you say, with the whole subject of adversity, um, this is where we have to find the positives. You know, it's okay to feel, to feel down, but I think ultimately we have to focus on the things that we can control. Yeah. Why do you think it is that,
1: I mean, as a society, we're just not very good at stuff are we we're not very good at instilling the right motivation into our young we're not very good at you know i don't want to say preventing bullying because it it obviously start it's something that's coming from the home so then we've got so we're looking at relationship issues or lack of significant role model for 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 that young person it's it seems to be like all the work's done on Facebook <laughs> with, with, with a meme that's going to that's sort, sort our young people out
0: Good question and I think I could probably write a book on that alone trying to work it out because I'm still looking for the answers and uh, I don't think it's a quick answer but um, I think ultimately you know bullying is something that I experienced all my way through school and has had a real profound effect on me and probably still it still does now, even though I left school many years ago. Um, and you, you're right, it does tend to come from, come from deeper within, generally because that person has insecurities and challenges and issues of their own that they're projecting onto other people. And I look back at that now, I, I laugh at all the things I used to be called and how much I used to take it seriously you know, and be affected by that. Um, I'm very grateful I was bullied because it actually pushed me towards the path that I've taken in life. Um, but I think with society as a whole, I think what we've seen recently, especially with the COVID outbreak, is this sense of fear and anxiety and, and people are so materialistic. You know, people's lives are based around, you know, their job, their income, and so many people are surviving rather than thriving. You know, they don't really have a sense of purpose. And people, you know, aren't very resilient naturally because we are mo- most of us live in a very comfortable place. You know, we... We don't have to deal with a lot of a lot of hardship um and sometimes when we do that we can go one of two ways you know we can become resilient and and more physically and mentally robust or we can turn to unhealthy you know unhealthy ways to cope um i think all the panic buying we heard about was all a natural response people people being you know people responding to fear and uncertainty um and naturally the outdoors adventure has taught me to think, right, what's the opportunity? How do I make the best of this? Not everybody, of course, can go off to Everest, can be in the army, can have these experiences, but I think, uh, I do think a lot of it is that we are losing connection with ourselves and with each other. Social media is playing a massive role in that. We're getting this constant perception of what we should be doing and what we should be, and this conventional path to life. And I think that I've been lucky that my, my life events have sent me on a different path from that. Um, by chance. Um, but ultimately I think at a young age I um you know I had experiences that taught me what really matters. And I think a lot of people are really out of touch with what matters and hopefully one thing that comes from all this is that we, we we're having time to stop and reflect and realise what's it's all about. You know, what are we here to do? What really matters? Is it about, you know, succeeding with the typical ticklets, you know, good job, good house, you know, car, that sort of thing. Or is it about actually trying to be the best we possibly can be and to help each other?
1: Yes, exactly. It's it, it it is interesting. I I feel incredibly fortunate that I found what I love to do, Alex. You know, and 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 obviously I can do it from home, and I'm I'm doing it now meet, meeting incredible people like yourself. Um, it would seem, or it seems kind of strange to me now that there's people that just go to a job and that's when they come back that they're kind of, you know, um, tapping their fingers on the table because it's uncomfortable. Whereas for me, I've experienced a really nice sense of peace during this lockdown. Uh, mm. I think the yeah. weather's pro- probably helped, but you know, that's, <laughs> it's always going to be this, you know, the seasons are, are what they are. Um, so Yeah. But let's move on let's um well, let's just talk about the bullying and stuff because I was asked just the other day by one of the um young men that I life coach um, how he can deal with the memories of being bullied from school and the effect that the the effect it's still having on his life and my answer was first of all turn every negative into a positive so look for the positive realize the lessons you you can take by not being a bully yourself as you go through life secondly forgive those bullies because they are victims themselves by definition of the fact they're having to take their inner anxiety out on other people and by by forgiving them and realizing there's nothing wrong with you um what you're doing then is you're taking your marbles back out of their pot because yeah. all the time you've got your marbles in someone else's pot
0: you're not going to win the marble game of life <laughs> i don't think i can add much to that really I, mean, I think there is that personal acceptance and forgiveness is really important uh when i look back now at the bullies and the things that i was called and how that used to bother me i almost laugh at how meaningless and how all those comments didn't have any real importance. They were just very childish and were just very typical, you know, kids or the kids' behaviour. But at the time, of course, it's a lot harder to see that, especially when you're young, when you're very uh, sensitive to these things. Um, I think it's great that we don't become bullies ourselves. That's really important because there's a whole case of treat people how you'd like to be treated. Always, always works. But I think what helped me was that I, in some ways – Everest was a way of proving them wrong and proving me wrong, you know, proving that actually you know, I, you know, I was proud to be different. I wasn't afraid to be different and that I could prove all these bullies wrong that said I was all, all these horrible things. But quite quickly, I realised there was nothing more to prove. You know, and I look back and a lot of those bullies are still where I thought they'd be. Um, some of them have I've gone on to achieve you know, successful paths and careers. Some of them are just doing the bog standard tick you know, tick box approach to life and I've been very lucky to to you know build a successful different unconventional path I'd like to think. Um and it came to me once I was walking around town in Chester and uh one of the people I've been to school with, not necessarily a bully but one of the kind of bystanders, um he's he he just saw me for the first time in many years since school and uh, he said, You've been busy and this was after both Everest attempts and I felt good that all these people that doubted me and I was this this loner with stammer, badly bullied, the the one that never really fit in, had kind of gone on to achieve bigger things where mm-hmm. they've kind of followed the the beaten track. And I won't lie that there was an element of you know wanting to be better than them because they made me feel so pants. But problem is if we go on if we go through life trying to prove things, trying to prove to other people, we're never going to be happy. We're never going to be satisfied. And once I found that in myself, I was able to do these things just for the personal journey of the achievements and the experience. And, um, and I wish if I could give my advice, advice to my younger self or anybody younger, it would be that nobody can make you feel bad without your permission. And you've got to really analyse what these people are saying. Does it really have any meaning or is it just their own insecurity? Um, in which case, you know, unless you take it on board, unless you react to it, it literally, physically cannot affect you. Um, if,
1: if you're getting and, and bullied,
0: reach, reach out for help. Don't
1: just hide it and put
0: up with it, you know? Definitely reach for help. Because I didn't, I never got enough help. The school barely did anything. It was, it was powerless to do it. And it got to the point that I started cycling 10 miles to school every day just to avoid the school bus and all the bullies on there. And then I had my tyres slashed. I was spat on, had bottles thrown at me because then I was singled out. Um but the positives are is that I started cycling to school and that got me into cycling. So, um, you know, there is all, there is these positives, but I think all I'd say is, um, is you've got to let them go. You can't dwell on them, but I will admit that even today, I'm very, very self-critical. And I think that is largely in part due to being bullied. And, um, it can be hard to, to, to shift, but I think sometimes if you're, feeling very frustrated or very bad about yourself. You've got to write down all these beliefs that you might be holding. You can just put them on paper and actually just to th- think about each one and think, where's that coming from? Is there any evidence to prove all these things? Mm. There's not.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also life isn't, you know, it's not a sprint. It's, we're, in it, we're all in it for the long, long run. And if it takes 20 years to, to, to talk yourself into a better place, well, then you've still got, you know, maybe another 50 years left to go once you've got it right. And and to me, that's a good deal. You know, that's a really good deal.
0: It's always a work in progress. I mean, you know, I've left school, what, eight, uh, eight years ago nearly, and it still affects me, but it gets easier with time. And um, I think, you know, just being able to, Reach for help to find your own self worth. So that you're not dependent on others. On others, and this is where social media has a, a negative role. Is that we can become dependent on others' approval for our own self worth, and that's where bullying is, is so dangerous. And, social um,
1: media. I mean, maybe we save that conversation for another day. But what? A, it's not even a double-edged sword. It's like a sword that's got three bad edges, and and maybe like one blunt semi good edge <laughs> it's, I like it's that, no, yeah. awful what we put on our young people as adult and we just let it happen we don't question it and gosh so let's if we may alex let's just touch on on you mentioned epilepsy um i saw in one of your write-ups panic attacks this kind of thing can we just just uh, you don't have to go deep. Lee into it, but I just want to show for our young people listening sure. and, and our old people, and, and indeed for myself, the sort of challenges you vote o- over, the challenges you've used to your advantage, you know, in the long
0: run. Exactly, because I think, you know, the, these challenges are exactly that. They can be problems or challenges, depending on how you view them. And uh, I've been very lucky, I had a great start in life, and what I've dealt with is, is, is nothing compared to some, but our challenges are relative to, to everybody. And when I was about nine years old, I was diagnosed with a malform um, of epilepsy. Now, I only had a few seizures. You know, I was very lucky that they didn't, um, you know, they were brought under control quite quickly. I've been seizure-free for, what, 14 years now, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm never really concerned about, about that coming back. Um, but at the time, it was just a catalyst for a whole host of different challenges. So anxiety and panic attacks all the way through school, where even having a seizure in mcdonald's meant that just the smell of fast food could trigger a panic attack oh. and that like so sensitive to everything around me that whilst growing up my friends are more interested in girls and football and playstation i was sat there in assemblies in classes sort of trying to take deep breaths trying to stop a panic attack coming on um very very much a health hypochondriac you know um, very very anxious and uh and yeah, that was that was really unsettling. Um, the epilepsy when I was younger really kind of made me afraid to go out of the house and my parents weren't there, you know, just because of the fear of having more seizures. And I did go out and about. I did knock around like normal kids, but there was there was good and bad days. Mm. Um, prior to that, I've had a stammer ever since I've been able to speak. And this is the people thing that people really don't get is that you know I'm you know nowadays you know I'm a speaker. My main job is speaking in public, you know, to companies, to schools Um, Been speaking now professionally for about four or five years. But even still today, I can struggle to make a phone call. I can get on a talk, get on a train to speak to 500 people somewhere fluently and then not be able to ask for a ticket on the way home. Mm. Um, But for a long time, I had no control or no confidence over that stammer. So you can imagine makes school even harder. And, to the point that I'd literally smashed up phones at home for the frustration of being able to say my own name, hiding in the toilets because I was terrified of speaking in class and embarrassing myself. And it can be so bad that you, know, you can't say a single word. I really struggle with words beginning with K, which isn't ideal when you're from Kelsall and now live in Kendal. Um, You know, is it really? It could have come in much, much worse. But I think the stamina knows that.
1: That Sounds like a Monty Python sketch or something.
0: It it does, and you have to make fun of it. And for a long time, I did. You know, I I had to just treat it as part of me. And it wasn't until about four years ago I went on a course um, called the Starfish Project, which really changed it because I got a new technique, I got better ways of managing it. It's still an everyday challenge. It still holds me back. I'll admit that, but when I realised that I had a gift, I had something to share by speaking, I had to do it, I had to face that fear. And it's led me to where I am. Alex, what is it that drives the stammer? Is it, is it a sort of mild form of anxiety or? There's a bit of mixed science around it, and a bit of you know, um, mixed beliefs, but I think generally, um, I think it is, it is an anxiety response. And it's essentially, I've read, it's like mini anxiety attacks in the, uh, in the vocal muscles. Now a lot of it is experiential. So for example, I really struggle to thank people or to ask questions because if I stammer on a question or thank you, it's very hard to skip past it. Whereas if you're a covert stammerer, you can almost change words, you can avoid it. Um I think that's with speaking, is that I can rehearse and I, I do rehearse all my talks word by word, so that I know what's coming and I can avoid the blocks. Um, but it's that case of not wanting to be seen to be rude or, or ignorant. There's that emotional anxiety. Um, and I think that's when it tends to be bad. It's not just about people say, slow down or take deep breaths or calm down or you're tired, you're stressed. Because in the most stressful, difficult moments in my life, I can be perfectly fluent. And then even just the day-to-day stuff when I'm very happy and relaxed, I can struggle. So... I don't know, but I think at some point I realized that I had to accept it, that it's part of me and I'm just not going to hold me back. Um, but Hey, at school for a long time, it did.
1: Yeah. When I was, um, really bad with my drug addiction, I started to, I, I didn't know what was happening to me because there wasn't kind of medical information like there is these days. These days you can just Google stuff and, Oh, that, that's, that's what I'm experiencing. So back then I'm, I'm going up to people, or people would pass me, and for some reason, if I needed to speak to them, I'd go, and I'm stammering, and I just couldn't get my words out. And as I couldn't get my words out, my panic is just increasing even more. And that's... it exacerbating the not being able to speak in some conversations i just had to go pat the guy on the shoulder and i had to walk off really embarrassed oh God, you know. yeah, I know. Hide on, there's you know i was 27 trying to be as cool as possible dormant on a on, on, you know dormant on a nightclub and i couldn't i couldn't speak it's it's uh, well it's good i can laugh about it now at, at what point alex Did you, um, was there a switch that changed in your head, like a moment of enlightenment between then and obviously deciding that you're going to climb Everest?
0: It was, and quite a long story, really. Um, But I guess in a nutshell, it was about 14 years old, discovering the outdoors. And it was by chance, you know, I was invited hill walking with a friend in the Lake District. And prior to that, I'd started to sort of sow some seeds where, I was on holiday in Turkey with my mum, and um, prior to that, my parents had just kind of they, you know, you know they, you know they, you know they separated uh, just as I started high school, which can in some ways made me grow up a lot faster than I probably would have done. Um, and then on that holiday in Turkey, I decided to try something called paragliding, which is quite mm-hmm. an extreme sport. Like I was never the adventurous sort, so God knows where that urge came from. Um, Mom looked to me like I'd gone mad, but that decision, that control, that case of actually, I'm not going to let this hold me back anymore. Changed well, that changed my whole, mom, my whole my whole mindset from this victim mindset to a victory mindset, and I think that still applies today in in various forms of, you know, do I, you know, do I fight or flight? And it is that whole case of, you know, we can't always choose what happens to us in life, but we choose how we respond. And that's still what kind of guides me today, really. And I think that moment, jumping off that hill in Turkey, 7,000 foot, I'd never been so scared in my life. But ultimately, that's what changed everything, because I realised that I could do a lot more than I thought I could, and that I wanted to find what I could overcome next. You know, I was still this really shy, anxious kid. You know, still all these challenges were going on. But I found this passion, this confidence that I never had. Mm. from then on i wanted to keep on pushing that finding out more stuff to do and then started running started more outdoor challenges that hill walk in the lake district though is what probably got me onto the everest path because we were walking out in the hills and i was still suffering with anxiety and panic attacks i remember we went on that hill walk and that evening i was in the restaurant having a panic attack you know but that day in the hills i remember we were near blencathra in the north lakes and i had this question pop into my head where is Mount Everest? You know, I didn't know anything about it, didn't even know where it was, and so naturally you come home, you go on Google, and uh, came across some photos of it, and just straight away became captivated and, and just fascinated by by Everest. So that was that was the kind of flick, flick the switch moment. But um, you know, at 14, I never imagined that actually just four years later, I'd have been at Everest Base Camp, about to make an attempt for the top. Ultimately, it was this case of deciding that Everest was the biggest thing that I could achieve, the biggest thing that I could overcome, and still proving myself, proving those bullies wrong. And over those four years, I just took the steps to, to make that goal a reality, really, and um, the rest, as you say, is history.
1: How did you get the funding? Because that's, I mean, that's what's holding me back as we sit here now. I, I haven't tried to get any funding, but I have a kind of dream of... You know you you either have the hook of climbing Everest or you don't, and when you have it, it, it I will admit it is an, it, it's an item I've added to my my bucket list. Um, I'll come on to that because I'm also really in two minds about it because I'm a father, and I know climbing Everest is not without its sort of dangers, and some of them you just can't calculate right the, the, sure. the av- avalanches as you, as you well no or the ice um the ice collapsing but how how did you go about raising the money
0: yeah because again i had a very typical background my parents have always given me support in other ways but they weren't just going to sign me a check you know we had a very average but comfortable background and they were never really outdoorsy themselves you know my dad was a runner uh he got me into running i remember you know, huffing and puffing my way at a two-mile run just in return for um, a uh, a two-euro coin on holiday in France to buy a croissant. Um, but they were never, you know, adventurers or mountaineers. And my dad, being from Yorkshire, said it was a lot of money to spend on a holiday. Because um, I think part of the, I think partly Everest was kind of three different areas. You've got the, you've got, you know, you've got the training, um, and you've got the funding. And then you've got actually the the prior, you know, the kind of prior experience as well, because it's not just about signing the check and it's not just about being good in the gym, it's about having a catalogue of high altitude mountaineering behind you so that you know how you perform at altitude. And that's well, there is no real shortcuts to that. People do take shortcuts, and fortunately give Everest a, a bad name, but ultimately it's a long process. And I took a very fast track approach, and I think looking back at that, I wish I'd done things differently. But at the time, I started to research other Everest climbers, you know, to find they'd walk the path. And what inspired me the most was that many of them were young, they were 18, 19. They'd had a similar background, but they'd managed to find the funds, you know, without having rich parents like some do. And ultimately the the way to do that was through uh, you know, it was corporate sponsorship. And I knew nothing about this. You know, I'd done Mont Blanc by this point, I'd been slowly sort of taking conscious steps towards Everest you know getting more altitude experience and working in a pub but obviously washing dishes in the pub wasn't going to pay for Everest because typically an Everest expedition to join you know a western-led properly guided and fully supported expedition you're looking about £30,000 maybe maybe even more now Um, and that's without any prior trips so there was raising money to go to Nepal for a month to try and climb a 7,000-meter peak. The expedition kit alone cost about £4,000, maybe more, as a rough idea. Um, and then you, so you look at the, the full cost of the project, you know, there's, there's a lot to it. Um, but ultimately, my mantra was, was find a way I'll make more. And um, corporate sponsorship became a full-time job. You know, I was contacting companies all over the UK day in and day out. Once I finished my A-levels, it became my gap year. Um, to be honest, even while I was doing my A-levels, it was my gap year, because it was all I cared about. Um, and then I spent a year just sending emails, literally. Um, got a, a sponsorship pitch together, and I, I won't bore you with the details of that, but ultimately it became, fundraising became a full-time job, and then when I wasn't sending emails, I was training, or I was working in the restaurant just to pay my keep and you know pay, pay my Please. own stuff.
1: Alex, um, is the money conditional? I mean, if you decided you weren't going to leave home, do you, do you get to keep it or have you got to
0: send it back? Well, I guess it depends. I mean, if, if a company's giving you, you know, if, if they're giving you sponsorship, it's a pretty big deal for them. It's a marketing opportunity. It's an acquisition. And, um, again, I had companies giving from so £100 up to £10,000 so they're making big investments and big risk, and that's the problem with Everest and getting sponsorship for individuals doing challenges. And why it's so difficult is there's so much risk involved, as I would later find. Um, but ultimately, I mean, if you'd spent the money, then you'd have to go on the trip. But the thing is, is you're spending the money in advance because your expedition leader starts and needs to, you know, buy oxygen in advance. You need to buy the permits. The permit alone is about eleven thousand dollars. These things aren't refundable and. When the expeditions went wrong, as they did, we couldn't get any of that money back because it had already been spent. Um, You're not paying for a kind of a package holiday, and this was the kind of, the problem really is that it's a different, it's a different ball game. Um, And that was the frustration for me is that I'd come back unsuccessful. I couldn't get these companies' banners to the top of the world, and yet I couldn't give them any money back. Um, I was able to go back at a cheaper cost because obviously some of those costs could be transferred over um but ultimately no you've got to be 100 percent on it and um find people willing to take the risk yeah because you, you've just added an angle there that
1: that possibly a lot of people wouldn't consider it's not just the disappointment of not your dream not coming through and you summit this mountain it's the fact you've spent all this time and effort to get this incredibly large sum of money together from an from a difficult source and like that you're
0: back to square one. Oh God, yeah. And maybe that's itself is a barrier to why people don't, you know, chase these big goals because they're scared of failure. They're afraid of what could go wrong. And if I knew what could go wrong, I would never have started. Um I was, you could say, very unlucky with what happened. Um, but I could never have predicted or planned for that. And all I could do was adapt to the circumstances as best I possibly could. But there wasn't just the the feeling of actually, you know, losing the money in my own effort, you know? Yeah, you can't replace time, but you can go back. It's actually a sense of spending other people's money, you know, that, okay, it was completely out of my hands. And it wasn't like I'd gone there completely, you know, completely unprepared and and unequipped and done something stupid um but ultimately it was just that sense of helplessness really and um there is there is a real emotional load to that because you know straight away you're thinking you've spent all that time and effort and training and money and it's just gone um but the mountain doesn't give a damn how hard you've worked how much you've spent and you know you have two responses to that you can Use it to come back stronger, you know you can take people back on the journey, um, you know or you can get to that point in life like many people on the trip did you know, especially people that were a lot older than me that kind of wanted to do this for many many years and life got in the way and they kind of they left that chance and um, I think to be willing to achieve something like everest you've got to be willing to take the risk and, and put it on the line and I was lucky you know I was eighteen, I didn't have responsibilities. Um, wife, kids, all that sort of stuff. Some people had t- massive financial risks to, to do that. Um, but I think that commitment is why some people, you know, achieve extraordinary things. How, m- how much was your biggest donation? £10,000. Oh, that that was a good one to get. It was. And the thing is, that's the difference is that it's sponsorship. Is it's not a donation as such because it's a two-way relationship. You know, you've got to give them return and value, and it's difficult to do that if you can't get the kind of, get the money shot on the summit of the, the top of the world. Mm. Um, but ultimately, it got, it got coverage in other ways, not for the reason we, we expected. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a long process, and you've got to be in it for the long haul. So let's come on to the actual
1: challenge, because, um, wow, it's real boys' own stuff, isn't it? Did, wh- which side of the mountain did you climb?
0: Uh, in Nepal, so the south side. Nepal is that the hillary, hillary step side or? yeah yeah just below the summit you've got the, the classic bits and then you've got camps one to four through the icefall as well mm. is it true the hillary
1: step part of it's collapsed or is that a myth
0: i've not been there seen it for myself but uh i've heard that's the case yeah or basically the the step of the obstacle that was there is now gone mm. okay um so yeah, let's let. Did, did, so you did the, the walk in. Is it the trek in? 2014, we flew out um, to you know to Nepal. I was on a team led by uh, Tim Mosdell, who I'd actually climbed with on my very first rock climb uh, in the lakes. Because once I had this fascination of Everest, I started speaking to as many people as I could, and I wanted to meet an Everest climber and realise that there were superhumans who'd done it, and actually that I wanted to be like them. And I wanted to be on Tim's team from the start, so luckily, you know, I jumped the hoops that he raised up, and he let me on the team. And uh, there was four of us going out there with Officer Sherpas and, and the wider team. And um, and yeah, we started a three week trek from Luckler, um, that tiny airstrip in uh, mm-hmm. out in the high mountains. Mm-hmm. And then from base camp, you know, we would have spent five weeks, you know, making a number of acclimatization trips and and there were, you know, well. You know, you know, they're known as rotations, where you're obviously getting uh, acclimatized to the various altitudes and getting the logistics in place. But then everything had started so well. Uh, a day before we got to base camp, there was a massive avalanche in the icefall, which is the section just above base camp. And sadly, 16 climate shippers had been killed, which was the biggest disaster in Everest history at the time. So we got to base camp the next day, and it was a very, very somber mood. You know, it was. Horrible, really, and um, obviously we had we had to sit sit low and you know have respect. And there was a period of mourning, you know, for all the sherpas who obviously all knew each other. Um, and it was yeah a massive shock. And what happened next was a bit complicated. a long story, but politics and governments got involved, and um, it just turned very very messy. And we had no choice but to go home without stepping a single foot on the mountain. Did
1: am i remembering this rightly did did sherpas suddenly say hang on we should be getting paid more for this
0: a minority used the opportunity um to get better payout insurance from the government and the ministry of tourism so they essentially held the mountain to ransom by saying if anybody climbs we're going to hurt you or your Sherpas." and it was only a very 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 few people that you know preyed on the emotions of a very tragic situation. And sadly kind of caused, it it was change that they deserved and needed. They needed to be better insurance payouts and better care from the government and tourism. But at doing that, they also cost each other massively because obviously they lost all the tourism, all the people went home. Yeah. Um, So it it was a really sad situation.
1: So that was disappointing. How did you, how did it come around that you decided to go back?
0: Well, initially, you know, we can't complain when we're going home safe to our families. Um, But there is that bitterness. There is that resentment. And I think you've always got to take a bit of time to let yourself feel it. Let yourself be disappointed. But don't linger on it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Give yourself a bit of time and then accept it. Right. What can I do about this? And um, basically, I realized I had to go back. I'd come this far. You know, I was all for giving up, but that wasn't the right thing to do. People have given me so much investment and some of them supported me to go back again, which I was very, very lucky for. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I took a year to do more training, having learned, as we mentioned before, that the mindset and the flexibility and building that mental endurance is so key. And I think I'd gone out there without a complete understanding of that and um, been quite frustrated at how bad I felt so soon with the altitude. But altitude... Affects everybody, no matter how young or how fit you are. And I realised it was an opportunity to really work on that—not the altitude, because you can't train for that—but just that mindset and mental resilience. So I did a number of challenges, uh, endurance stuff in the hills and on the bike, just to really test that, uh, to build some kind of, you know, to build some momentum. I think just to get that sense of achievement back, you know, to get that buzz that you get at the end of a race or reaching the top of a mountain, which is close to home. Uh, raised some money for the, uh, you know, for the victims um, and the people in the Nepal. And, um, and then, yeah, went, raised the money again and went back in 2015. Wow.
1: That's another thing, isn't it, is in life, if you focus on giving and not, and not the selfish aspect, the universe seems to give you back more. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Wow, so you went back in 17
0: how uh, 15 sorry oh
1: 15 yeah, yeah um and what was the reason you turned back th- th- this time
0: well once again it was um the power of nature and taking things out of our hands um we were on the same team same format and uh, we got to base camp and it was fine and then we were making our first trip up to camp one our first you know, you know it was our first kind of rotation and we were just below Camp One, about half an hour away. Most of the team were already there when the earthquake hit Nepal. So we were, well, we were in the, just at the top of the icefall. fall. We got out of the, the kind of the most dangerous part where you've got this, you know, you've got hanging to racks and crevasses. But we're moving into the Western Coum, which is this massive valley of ice it's at six thousand meters. Um, you've got seven thousand meter peaks on either side of you, and I was that knackered that day. I was having a really, really bad day that I didn't feel the earthquake. I didn't actually feel the ground shaking because I was on my own at this point in the fog. Um, I I just remember hearing this massive kind of booming crack, which was the sound of ice breaking off the mountain. And then that was an avalanche coming straight towards us. So at that point, um, you know, panic set in. It's like, okay, I need to get down of here quick. You're try, trying to walk at the altitude is hard enough. You know you're higher than the top of uh, Kilimanjaro now. You know and trying to run, it's it, you just feel this sort of your heart pounding through to the floor as this panic takes over and all the time this noise getting louder and faster and we can't quite see where it's coming from. Um, and then after a while it kind of went very quiet and I thought, oh, I must be safe. You know, that must be it. And then it just hit me with this whack, this snow cannon, knocked me off my feet, suffocating, freezing cold air, deafening blast of wind. There's this big blast of powder just came straight through. And, you know, I can only assume the worst. And for the first time in my life at 19. I was thinking, genuinely, this is it. Mm. You know, this is game over. And that's... It's like sickening feeling of fear and helplessness that mm. there is nothing I can do about this. Did you have a time. mo
1: a, a moment, Alex, where everything sort of went sterile and white and you get that kind of metallic taste in your mouth and you think, oh my God, I never thought it would happen to me and it's going to happen.
0: That It was like that, I think. And I don't want to take away from people that I've had you know, very, very, very close near-death experiences. But I think it was the closest thing I've ever, I've never felt anything like it. At that Mm. momentary kind of, it was almost as if you're flipping into a different perspective
1: Mm.
0: and the world's changing around you and that sickening, overwhelming loss of control. Um, And it it was a split second. You know, I don't know how long this thing lasted, but it was that genuine feeling of, yeah, game over. Yeah. And um, it's yeah. hard to describe. Um very hard to describe. But it luckily it wasn't a, a proper avalanche as such, it was a blast of powder. But when you hear something like that coming at you, you know, um and, it, and unfortunately it did pass, you know, we just got this big blast of powder, we were covered in snow, the ropes were buried, but uh I'm still here, you know, straight away I shooed my teammates behind me were dead because I couldn't get them on the radio. And um, I just had to get myself to safety. You know, I, I, there was nothing I could do for them in with all, with all these ropes and everything gone and crevasses. So I got to camp one and found two of my teammates, you know, both a lot older, a lot tougher than me, you know, shaking one of their glasses are just shattered with the force of the wind that hit us. Um, and that's when it really sunk in really as to what we've just been through. Um we were trapped at camp one then for two days on the mountain The route to base camp had gone. We're told we'd be there for a week. You know, we've got food for a day, maybe two at most. And every half an hour, you've got aftershocks, avalanches from both sides. So that was interesting.
1: (laughs) Alex, I'm I'm just trying to which which was the one, which was the incident then where a massive um, wave, if we can call it, of snow washed over the base camp and and a lot of people got smashed up I think there were
0: many deaths. at the same time was it this basically one? the earthquake that had triggered this you know this avalanche into the ice into the western coon where we were um, luckily it was pretty benign but the same avalanche sorry the same earthquake um, triggered a massive avalanche into base camp down below which was um, basically falling rock and ice from Pomori which is one of the peaks just above base camp. And Basecamp's never really been hit by a proper avalanche before because of, of where it's situated. This is how big it was. And people never expected or even saw it to the very last second because the fog was so bad that day. And the, the footage you've probably seen in the news um, of this tsunami of rock and snow and ice flying everywhere um, was where the real damage was done. And yeah, sadly, 21 people, or possibly 22 people, lost their lives that day, um, mm. including three of our team, sadly. Um, you know, to think that actually we'd been in the safest place of all. Well, and you say your team members behind you on the
1: rope were missing. Was, was that the three? Or
0: They were luckily fine. That was my leader, Tim, and uh, teammate Ellis. And they were just about 10 minutes behind. But they, they, were, you know, they arrived to our relief quite shortly afterwards. But it was the people down at base camp, staff, and... You know, to think that we'd only left base camp ourselves, you know, at five o'clock that morning.
1: So, did you have to go down and dig dig them out? Or were there were there
0: dead bodies everywhere? I mean, I'm assuming there was. Um, base camp, I'm told, and from what I've seen, is was a bit like a, a, a bomb blast, a bit like a plane crash. And even when we got down two days later, it was still very much a plane crash. But the the dead and the injured had already been moved mm. by this point. Um, fortunate, really, for us that we escaped. We escaped seeing that but i know people that were a base camp had to deal with that and um there was a lot of the remnants of that were, were still around you know and, um yeah pretty pretty unpleasant uh but luckily we'd because because we were trapped in the mountain for two days you know we it all been it all been cleared really
1: it's interesting it's because i would go there And I would be expecting that that is a possibility that could happen. Maybe not so much base camp, because as you said, it's not really happened in in known history. But I would be expecting, you know, something very bad could happen. Um, And indeed, I've been on expeditions where, people, you know, a person lost their life. But I would imagine for some people... It's, they, I don't think they can perceive that that could happen. And so when it does, it's, a, it's
0: so much more of a shock. It's um, Really interesting point. And you certainly see how different people responded to it. You know, some of our people on our team were ex-military um, and they were, most of them kept a much clearer head. You know, they were much able to respond and take on that leadership role. Some people completely flipped. I mean, I went into shock. You know, I didn't really, I didn't necessarily flip, but I just, I was just numb. You know, I just lay there in my tent for two days, um, not really taking care of myself. Whereas some people that were always sort of planning too far ahead, the ones that were always asking things like, am I fit enough yet? Or are we gonna, you know, what's gonna happen on summit day, always thinking a bit too far ahead of themselves. They were the ones that crumbled because they're almost always anticipating and anticipating. I think one of the key skills from the mountains and endurance is being able to take things one day at a time. Mm. And um, I think that, that nature serves people well. But typically, um, typically, I mean, you know, when you're going to something like Everest, with any challenge, you, you've got it. you know, you have an appreciation for risk. But the thing was, this was unprecedented. This, this shouldn't have happened. You know, if anybody, we should have been the ones in the danger zone. And that is, I think, is a good metaphor for life that actually... You know, even staying in our comfort zones can kill us um, but ultimately, I think um yeah <laughs> at the time, you know everybody responds differently, but I think ultimately um, you know, you can't prepare for something like this, and it was actually a friend who'd been in the army, he was in the Royal engineers. It was him that was the only person who could really help me afterwards because you know there was me feeling guilt you know, for the people that died, why them, why not me? And he was quite harsh on me to sort of say, but look, you know, you know, it wasn't, they wouldn't care if it was you, you know, you've just got to grow from this. You've got to grow from this. I think he's seen some pretty horrific stuff at a young age, you know, and I've seen more at 19 than a lot of people will. Um, I feel grateful for that experience now because it's taught me what's really important. Um, But ultimately I think, uh, it is interesting seeing how how people respond to that in the moment. Um, because you're really tied into so many many emotions. And I kind of went into survival mode, you know, for two well, until we got well, we spent four days at base camp walking around trying to help in any way we could. Um, then we walked out of base camp, you know, so two days at base camp and four days to walk out. So we didn't put any stress on the, you know, on the helicopters or we're obviously trying to help people who are injured. Um, but it wasn't until I got in the airport on the way home that I just broke down, and um, just trying to deal with that really.
1: Yeah, gosh, yes, it, it's interesting. I, I went uh, to a festival in Portugal with two mates, and one, one and one of them was a very old friend of mine, guy I drove to India India and back with, and uh, he drowned like on our first night at this festival, we hadn't even got into the festival. We were camping, waiting to go in and he must've decided to go for a swim. And he basically wasn't, wasn't a very good swimmer. And, um, so I went, when we got noticed, something was wrong. I had to walk down to the lake to see if it's our mate because, um, well, you know, to see if it was our mate, and it 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 was. So we're on holiday. And it's almost comical. We got a dead body on our hands, and then you've just got to deal with it, right? There's no there's no guide, but. No, I was no. just very, just I just remained detached, you know. It's um.
0: You have to detach yourself, and I, yeah. and I don't want to be an expert. And I know people that. I've dealt with far, far worse things, um, you know, and y- you do have to detach yourself. And I think that was what the advice my friend gave me at the time is you've just got to grow from this and, and use it to do good. You know, and this is now a, a driver for me and it's been almost a mental health challenge is that I now feel this pressure to, to co- to contribute, you know, to make the most of what I have. And I was already doing that to make sense. I was already following my dreams in life and you know trying to be the best I could be but actually the sense of I need to serve a purpose um because I shouldn't be here which I know it sounds very very deep and very morbid but I think um having a sense of purpose I think has always been key for me in my especially mental health and it's something that I advise to a lot of people is that crikey without purpose what have we got to get us out of bed in the morning um that event happened to me and um it still comes back to get me now and again, you know, it's always going to be with me and it's the anniversary this week. Uh, Um, And yeah, as I'm sure you, you know, you found with your own experiences, you know, these things, they, they change you, they live with you, but um, we have to somehow use um, it.
1: I'm very clinical now, Alex. It's because I've had, I've had a lot of hurt and pain to get over in my life. And so now I just don't do it. I literally don't go there so when my friend uh i call him lee in 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 my work when lee died i just looked at his dead body and thought right you know i mean the first thing coming made me is is this a sign i should stop partying and i'm like chris what what would he have said to that he'd say get a grip man <laughs> grow up go and have a beer and live live your life you know but it was interesting that the other guy who hadn't been in, the, I mean, Lee hadn't been in the military, but this guy hadn't either. He he just went to pieces in almost the worst way you can deal with anything. He's just hysterically crying and, and, and wouldn't stop all, all day long. Um, and when you mention the airport, so cut along cut cut a bit of a story short but i ended up at madrid airport in spain flying home and i put my bag on the scales and the check-in assistant just just looked at me and went and i said what what's wrong he just said so he pointed to the um I can't remember exactly what he said, but he pointed to the, the information desk. So I put my rucksack on, walked over to the information desk, and they said, oh, a plane's just crashed on the runway. And in that plane, there 100, everybody died. It was 167 people. As I'm, as I'm putting my bag on the scales, there's 167 people basically burning to death in an airplane just just like there. And, um, yeah, it pays to be a bit philosophical in life sometimes. So my thoughts were just with them, their families, and I turned around, went and got myself a hotel and, you know, again, I didn't put any emotional investment into it other than just paying my respect to those people and their families. Um, yeah, gosh. So let's... Let's move forward, Alex, because you're doing some amazing things. What's it like? I'm, I'm just getting into the public uh, speaking arena. I think this um, COVID thing has, has kind of put its, its foot down on that a bit. But is it mm-hmm. – how, how do you deal with the nerves of going on stage in front of hundreds, if not, if not more people?
0: Um, my biggest audience to date is about 650, but – I don't necessarily find it more daunting with more people. Um, it, you know, it's such a variety and that's what makes it such a rewarding and interesting job is that every talk is different. Every audience is different, but, um, with time, the nerves have got easier. I mean, I think you've got to have some fear because if you don't have fear, then there's no respect for the audience, you know, and, and that comes across and then you become complacent. Um, there's still an element of fear, but that's what makes it interesting. And, uh, and when you get into it, when you get into the, get in the flow, when you connect with people, uh, it's a most fantastic experience. And I'm very, very grateful to you know, have a chance to do that and do, you know, to get to speak to so many people and, and meet so many inspiring people around the UK and Europe. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, to be honest, when I got, when I got better control of my stammer, it got, I got less nervous because I knew that I had more control. There was less uncertainty before then. I had to be really, really, really rehearsed and properly in the zone to reduce the stammer. Mm-hmm. Some, but until I get on, on on stage and open, open, open my mouth, I have no idea how my speech is going to behave. It's a bit like a, a naughty child. Um, but now I love it, you know. And I like that with, with anything. With confidence, with practice, it gets easier. Did you um,
1: Did you watch The Office when it was on? I, I, it, the, it's actually probably um, quite a few years ago now. It might be before your top top time, Alex. Ricky Gervais uh, office. It. Oh, it's. Um, uh, if you ever get a chance, maybe type into YouTube "Ricky Gervais motivational speaking" or something. Else. Nice. If you haven't seen it, it's no. I, I won't say any more to but to our friends at home watching you. Some of you might yeah, know. It's the
0: office,
1: he's just. Um, the most egotistical, (laughs) self-conscious life coach there. (laughs) But um, do you have a a set kind of speech that you've worked on over the years? Did you start with something kind of manageable and now you, you flow from, you know, adapt and flow from that?
0: Yeah, it varies. I mean, when I started off, it was purely by chance. I never... It would have been my worst nightmare to be a professional speaker with a stammer. But I got the opportunity to speak to a school about the Olympic torch, which, um, you know, I was fortunate involved with in 2012. And it was a case of, right, I've got an opportunity. I'm scaring the hell out of me. I don't want to do it. But I've realized just what happened when I did challenge myself and take these opportunities. And so I kind of couldn't say no. And then I found it amazingly easier than I expected to speak to 210 kids. And I got a buzz out of it. And I realized, actually, I could do this. Um, And the feedback I got from the kids, everything, just made me realize, actually, I've I've got to do this. You know, I've got to give something back. Um, But then that evolved. And then I kind of got, I started to actually approach more speaking gigs. I loved the buzz and the confidence boost it gave me. And then I got an opportunity to speak um, for a business club. Now, this was a fairly prestigious club, but it was in return for a, you know, a charity you know, a charity contribution and a donation to the cost of my trip. So, obviously, I kind of had to say yes. Um, but that was when I f- met my first speaking mentor, John, and he coached me on the very basics and a bit of a fast-track course into speaking. And I spoke to 100 people in this business club who are used to listening to the pros of like, you know, ran fines and things. And, and got a stand, you know, I got a stunning ovation. And It was just the most magical feeling, and so that's your point. Um, when I started off, it was a case of doing it because I had to, and it was a bit of a just journey through where I started and what's brought me there. But like anything, you get better with practice and, and learn from feedback. Most importantly, good and bad, a lot of bad. And um, and then I just it kind of I got paid for my first talk. And then there's this mindset shift of oh, people pay me to do this. This is cool. Um, I was eventually able to stop washing pots and working in hotels and pubs and restaurants, and uh, along with sponsorship and ambassador roles, could do this, you know, more and more. And now it's a big part of the day. You know, it's a big part of my day job. Um, but to, to do that, to stay relevant, to be able to appeal to businesses, you've got to be very specific and concise, and you've got to present very well. Um, so typically, I have to tailor my adventures and my stories to businesses and to schools and the message that they want to hear and what's beneficial in the business environment so i'm always tweaking it you know i always use a script i always prepare for every talk um, but it's never it's never the same and because every talk every business is different and i'm constantly learning constantly doing new challenges and as ronald fine said you know you have to do expeditions to um to get the stories to pay the bills and it's secondary for me you know i love sharing the stories and the feedback that i get is what inspires me to keep on doing it he
1: sent. he sent me um he sent me his book the other day, a signed copy of his book, which was uh,
0: oh wow, yeah, uh, a big inspiration for all of us. And uh, yeah, yeah, proof that we can do, proof that we can be doing these things for years to come. And I went
1: to my my girlfriend very kindly bought me tickets to see him, for my um fiftieth birthday. So we saw him not just the other week actually, and uh, incredibly funny, incredibly dry, public dry yeah, It was it was just brilliant to listen to to i don't know if that's the same speech he always gives but it was so um it was so funny and and so humble
0: i met him once at chester literature festival and he was very dry as you say and i think people like that they've they've got so many stories to choose from that that was the challenge i've had is that as i've done more stuff i've got the same time and i keep kind of reversing back to the same stories because if they work you know don't change it yeah um it's it is difficult what's the what did you you say you got negative feedback well luckily not much at least not directly but being very much a perfectionist um it was feedback that i picked up on myself and i look back at some of my early talks and cringe like i'm sure we all would um but but yeah i mean just constantly never never settling for for good enough and asking for feedback eventually eventually paying for coaching and mentoring and um and learning and uh you know and as a result of that you're able to to get busier and speak to more people
1: and tell us about your mo- more recent challenges then this um you you had the three peaks challenge that i read about and then you had this running up every single
0: county top uh yeah um well to start with quite a few i mean after everest just briefly I went to try and climb Oyu, which is the 6th the highest peak in the world in Tibet um, that was kind of part of a plan to go back to Everest one day but then I got to Camp 2 7,000 metres and then got ill, I had to abandon that summit attempt and that's when I had a very much a light bulb moment shift and that's when I went on to um I got back into running again because I'd not ran for, for years and years because of the injury risk and basically after a a bad case of anxiety and depression and an eating disorder after an injury. Um, I didn't want to risk going back there. So I got back into running again and then decided to stay close to home. So 2017, did climb the UK, which was my kind of biggest challenge to date, really, which was uh, climbing to the highest point of all the 100 counties in the UK, cycling, walking, running, kayaking. Uh, about five thousand miles in seventy-two days, which was fundraising for Young Minds, which is you know is the youth mental health charity. Mm. Um, basically, it took so long to get the help I needed that I wanted to to raise awareness of that. You know, frankly, I could cycle around the UK faster than, than I could get an appointment on the NHS. Um, so that's what that's where that challenge came from. And but yeah, that was an amazing journey. We have so much to enjoy in our home soil that most of us don't appreciate. Yeah um would you would you go back to everest have uh, the key question I, I can never say never you know i'm too young to say never but i think um the, the journey which is often a bit people forget about you know the journey has opened up so many other doors in my life and helped me to realize what my real passion is and and what's really important and there was something that obviously drove me to everest in the first place and there is still that bit of a goose bumpy feeling in there sometimes but Younger people tend to be worse at altitude, and I would wait till I'm a bit older, I think, um, to give me the best chance of success. But also, as I mentioned before, the fundraising, the commitment. Um, Everest has almost given me so much else in terms of speaking and writing and, and you know, you know, am uh, a charity, Mind Over Mountains, and, and, and the other challenges that I realise I don't really need it right now and that I'm not, I don't want it enough at the moment to be willing to give it 100%. You've got to want that. You've got to be willing to take that risk. Yeah. There's not so much the fear of what could happen. There's no fear of oh well that a bad thing could happen again uh, because we know how uncertain life is. It's more the case of not wanting to get enough at the moment. So we'll put, we'll
1: see. I'll put all your links, Alex. By the way, below the YouTube video for for anybody listening. Sure, you. Um, can you tell us what's what's the mission state? What's
0: the mission of your charity? So it's a fairly new project, actually, um, because in the past, all my challenges have been fundraising for a variety of causes, but I've certainly found that, you know, the outdoors and exercise have been the best medication that I've tried. I've often felt that we need purpose, not pills. And after running, well, sorry, after Everest, after that, you know, kind of trauma of what happened there, it was running and charity work that really helped me to find a way through. And so I wanted other people to find those benefits Facing mine over mountains is about you know it's to restore mental health through outdoor experiences and building the resilience to stay mentally well um we do feel that being outside and being active on a regular basis is the most powerful tool that we have and especially in these very uncertain times you know i feel so grateful i can get out and run still and cycle um and essentially we want to help more people access that so we're currently set up as a CIC, a community interest company, but we're still due to get our charity number very soon. And, yeah, we really hope that we can get more people involved. And just briefly, you know, I mentioned my next challenge, which was meant to be happening in about two weeks' time, um, You know, which I mentioned is the Free Peaks. So I've, I know we spoke before, you know, about running and marathons and being rubbish in the gym, but loving that kind of human-powered adventure and um, my plan is to run the Free Peaks. So the National Free Peaks, people know it. Ben Nevis, Scarfell Pike and Snowden, but actually running the entire distance between them. Um, and I was trying to break the record for doing that um, unsupported. So running about 450 miles. Um, now, obviously, that challenge can't go ahead just yet, but as soon as it can, it will do. And that'll be raising money for Mine the Mountains as well. So I'd love people to actually follow me on that.
1: Wow, well, the best of, well I don't want to wish you luck because I know you're going to smash it. And that's that's where, so. you,
0: that's where your mindset set is. I've had an injury recently, which in some ways is another is another positive to the challenge being delayed because I've got more time to prepare and uh, I couldn't join in, but they were doing some mad stuff like that. And um, it just goes to show that whatever happens, we can all, you know, we can all, you know, muck in and make a difference. And been uh, uh, recently reading a really, you know, actually, uh, you know, a really good book by uh, David Goggins, um, Can't Hurt Me, uh, a US SEAL. And I love, I love reading about his, you know, his process through the application and the training. It's just, it sounds brutal, but I'd like to think that the outdoors has given me a similar kind of resilience. I'd love to test myself on something like that because although I might not have the physical strength, I think, um, I think our minds are capable of so much more. And I think it's really interesting to test that.
1: I um I listened to his book when I I did a quadruple Ironman for my fiftieth birthday. <laughs> As you did, <do. laughs> yeah. Well, I I sorry to the people that have heard this story before, but but um but there's always people that haven't. I I did a tri- I, I did my first triathlon. It was an Olympic distance triathlon, and I came last. In fact, my son was sat at the finish line going, "Where's Daddy?" <laughs> I was I was so. Rubbish, particularly on the bike. Everybody flew past me, and so I thought, what, how, what, what should I do next? Then okay, I'll do a quadruple Ironman, and I'll I'll do it in eight weeks' time for my on my fiftieth birthday. So I had eight weeks to go from being pretty much the country's worst um, triathlete. I got they didn't even give me they gave me a finishers medal, but I didn't get a time. I was too rubbish. Um, so I went from there to doing a quadruple Ironman in four weeks just to wow. show show people what you can do if you put your mind to it and you believe in yourself. Definitely. That, that was a nine nine and a half mile swim, uh 450 miles on the bike, immediately followed by a hundred and eight mile run. Um there was a point to telling you this story. Um And I think maybe I've forgotten (laughs) forgotten what it was. But, oh, well, sorry. What was the last thing you said, Alex? You triggered me to tell you this. Um,
0: Just about reading the book by David Goggins. Ah, Sorry,
1: sorry. Yes, of course. So I jumped in the swimming pool and I'd invested in these um, waterproof earphones. And I'd bought this waterproof pouch for my, for my, um, my, um, for my, phone and the idea was i could keep the tracker going on the phone so i could measure my let my i i ended up having to do it in a in a lido pool so it's a, a salt water a cold salt water swimming pool and i put the phone in this waterproof pouch i put the the earphones in i put on my tracker to measure the distance and i played david goggins jumped dived in the water and it didn't work. <laughs> so oh. so it didn't it didn't measure the distance, nor oh, did no. nor did it play David Goggins, which was um oh. yeah, which 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 wasn't wasn't a good start. But when I got to the bike, um then I then I listened to his whole book on, on the bike and yeah, I, again for young people who interested in mindset, David Goggins, You Can't Hurt Me. That was a good I one. Um, tell us about your own book,
0: Alex. Um, yeah, well, nothing to his standard, but uh, I've written uh, two books now. Uh, I've got Icefall, which is my first one. Uh, I saw there. I'm very proud to have that endorsed by uh, Bear Grylls himself. Um, and that's about my journey to Everest from nowhere, you know, to what happened, and then leaving kind of to what's next at the end of 2015. And then another peak came out last year, and that was talking about my... You know my county top challenge around the UK, sharing the people, the places, and the stories. But also, it was a bit of a mental health, self help type book, not written in that style, but being really honest and open about my struggles and how the outdoors has helped me through that. And I'm hopefully for giving people some practical things that they can do as well, close to home, um, you know, to get other men talking about it. So, those books have been a really enjoyable experience. I've always enjoyed writing and. I've had a lot of feedback that people enjoy reading them. So I'm currently using this lockdown time to work on a number three. But if anybody does want to obviously read more about my story, and my experiences, um, both books are available uh, signed via my website as well.
1: Okay. I'll put a link for your website below. You. And um, Alex, you're obviously a very humble man. <laughs> so I'm going to have to needle out of you. You, you, you had some, uh, uh, some award of the, one of these of the year awards was it uh, Achiever of the Year or something did I see Um
0: you're probably thinking of Pride of Britain award
1: um, that it, you, that's the words that should have been in my um forgetful memory
0: I can't really I can't really be humble about just kind of blurting out all Pride of Britain <laughs> um, it was the Granada reports to the Northwest region uh, Fundraiser of the year back in 2017 for the Climate UK challenge so a amazing recognition I mean it was always a life a life dream that one day I might get to go there but I, it was never a conscious goal it was one of those things that I'd have to really earn it and I never expected it at mm-hmm. 2017 you know the biggest honour and just to get in that room of so many inspiring people was just uh, phenomenal you know to have Prince Harry walking past you as if you are in the pub you know and um, <laughs> you know, Ozzy Osbourne was there to and um, uh, everybody you can think of in, edu- in entertainment um, but it was yeah the biggest honour really and uh, uh, I'll never forget it
1: Wow you thoroughly deserved it mate that's that's um
0: yeah but there's more challenges to come so we'll see what happens but uh, I think now is Mind of the Mountains is hopefully a way of creating a legacy that lasts and um, really helps people to to get the same tools that I found in the outdoors um, I really think that it can help people bring them back together, especially after what we're facing now. People will need it more than ever.
1: Yeah. Well, I should also add that just by coming on, on my podcast, Alex, you've, you're going to help people. Um, I hope so. Especially with what, you know, the, the, the great advice and, 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 and also the story that you've, you've told us today. So I will say goodbye. I um, truly hope we can do something at some stage. Yeah, in sure. the future, if if you don't mind slowing down for this old man, <laughs>
0: uh, it's all about is you know it's all the slow game. The important thing is finishing it. Of
1: course, it is. So massive respect to you, um, Alex. Thank you thank ever you so it. much to our friends at home. Thank you for watching another edition of the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Big love it to you and your families. Look after yourselves, and I will see you all soon. Thank you, Alex.
0: Thank you, guys.